Hello again, this is Keith Perhack from Segmetrics, and this is Data Beats Opinion. Today, we are meeting with Thomas Smale. He is the CEO and founder of FE International. He has worked with a number of business acquisitions, both before he became founder and then now specializes in it through FE International. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Keith. Appreciate it. Yeah, so you have a ton of experience in both buying, scaling, and then selling your own businesses. And then, as I kind of mentioned through FE International, uh, doing that for other businesses. How did you kind of get started with all this? Like, where did this where did this kind of start? Yeah, so if we go back 11 years to day zero of FE International, I was a college student. I think like most college students trying to make some extra cash. Um, I didn't, didn't, have, didn't really have any money. So at the time... Um, of companies like FE International did not exist. So if you wanted to buy and sell, at the time I was buying and selling domains, very small websites. Um, so at the time you'd almost buy them on eBay. So we places like eBay would sell domains, believe it or not. So what I was doing is I would buy a domain on my credit card and I would have, I think like a $500 or pound. Like I'm from the UK, but mm-hmm. now I live in the US. So I'd have a 500 limit. And I would max out the credit card at the beginning of the month, buy a bunch of domains or small websites fix them up, improve them, present them in a better way, and then try to sell them by the end of the month, pay off my credit card, wow. do the same thing and repeat. So it wasn't very exciting in the early days. It was like turn $500 into a thousand and then a thousand would become 2000. Um, and then I graduated college into a terrible recession and decided that it'd be a good idea to have a go at running my own business for a year rather than uh, like getting a, a regular job. Um, now time, obviously I, I had no money. So people started coming to me as I built up a bit of a reputation for being good at selling small, small websites, small domains. And I'd written a, a very small course about it at the time. Like I published a, as a, a book. So people came to me like, Hey Thomas, I read your book. Um, you've been buying and selling businesses yourself. Can you help me? Another time, I think my biggest sale ever personally had been like $3,000, which I thought was huge amount to a student. At least that was a huge amount of money. So I thought I was rich, made it, never had to do anything. Um, people then came to me like I think the first deal I ever did was about $20,000 I helped them sell their business just with processes I've been used using myself and then mm-hmm. they paid me 10% so I made $2,000 with effectively no capital outlay other than my time right. and I was like oh this is this is great I don't have any money so what, this is much what better, better <laughs> what better way to scale than effectively helping other people so then it kind of snowballed like I said companies like FE International did not really exist back then um, there were some out there, but I didn't think they were very good. So kind of snowballed, word of mouth started because there weren't many people doing what I was doing. Um, built up the company throughout the entire time over the last 11 years. I mean, FE and our like various like side ventures and projects within FE now around 90 employees. So we've grown quite substantially. We have offices in London, New York. I'm in San Francisco. We have an office in Miami. So we have a team all over. Um, throughout all of that time, we've also bought and sold our own businesses between myself and my business partner. We tend to, for perspective, FE International represents about around 150 clients per, per year. And we ourselves buy or sell one or two businesses a year. So we're a very small percentage of overall volume. Um, part of the reason we do that is first, I feel like just our skills are sharper if we've done it ourselves. Right. It's all very well giving someone advice but until you've actually done it yourself 
it's somewhat theoretical or hypothetical. Secondly, this is all I know. If you said to me, go invest in real estate, I, I don't know anything about, I mean, I own a house. And as you can tell, my house is like half empty. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know anything about anything other than the online world. Right. So that's what I know about. So that's what I invest in. Um, I also feel like it helps founder to founder. Almost all of the clients we work with selling their businesses are founders. I feel like it's much easier to associate with them if you are a founder yourself. Right. So and you while, know what, what they're going through. It, it, exactly. So while I'd be lying if I said I'm the one providing basically any of the service at this stage, I'm mostly managing the team, overseeing deals from a high level, building processes. For like experience, my business partner, Isman and I have found building up our own businesses and acquiring and then selling them on has been hugely beneficial. Um, and it means like, I guess we've got the real experience doing what we tell other people to do. Right. Um, I guess that's a little bit about the history. And like, as time's gone on, the deals we now buy ourselves are much bigger than they were five years ago. Because I guess we're fortunate right. that we've grown. We now have more capital. We can buy bigger businesses and work on, I guess, more complex things. Right. And, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, especially because I don't think that there are many companies that do that, that are also working and working to scale their own business, like buying a business, scaling it and then trying to sell it to really stay, like you said, stay sharp and to really prove that they know what they're, what they're talking about. I mean, in the marketing industry, I mean, that's pretty par for the course is that people are just spewing off stuff and have never actually done it. But they're like, oh no, this is this is how you're going to grow your list. This is how you're going to grow your business. Like, well, what's your business sense? Like, ten bucks. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 exactly. That's part of the logic for me. I just feel like it's easier to give. I'm sure every consultant says this, but easier to give genuine advice, which is truthful if we've actually done it. Um, so a, a lot of what FE International does is based around my own personal philosophies. So a lot of people might not like it. Like, hey, I don't like your process. Don't like your team this sucks but this is built the way i think it should be done and then there are lots of other ways you can do everything the same with marketing as well there's not necessarily right or wrong answers but we have our processes built around our, our own experience right we know that this works for our process and for our industry and for our niche may not work for yours but at least we know it works in it, this in it, this it, category it, exactly right yeah so you've really taken, I mean, going from selling 500, uh, spending a 500 pounds for a domain to selling that, to selling a company to now 90 people at FE International, where you're really overseeing a lot of it. Um, one of the things that you are very much an expert in, and I think it really shows with that growth is scaling, right? So when you're, when you're working with other companies to sell their businesses, I believe you had mentioned that you also work helping them scale up and getting ready to be saleable. Is that it, it, exactly. The vast majority of people come to us, I guess, like bottom of the funnel, own a business. They come get a free valuation, which we offer to everyone. And let's say their business is worth $5 million today. And they're like, hey, I want to sell it for 20. Like mm -hmm. we don't have anything to sell them at that stage. We don't, they, they've paid us nothing. So we generally say, okay, you need to go work on, here are three things we've noticed about your business, which is weaker than other businesses we've seen at a similar level go work on that call us when you get to 20 million so right. a lot of it is helping them scale without physically doing it ourselves on their behalf right which is beneficial for everyone because they get a bigger company they get a they get a bigger paycheck and you get a big, bigger cut and it's also improving the industry as a whole it, it, exactly like 
bigger bigger industry it's good for everyone like yes they might end up going to work with a competitor but long term if the industry grows by a hundred factor of a hundred does it really matter if one or two people go elsewhere like right the big big picture it doesn't deal by deal yes it's frustrating as a lot of competition but big pictures i don't think yeah, it's, it's good it's for issue. everyone exactly and, and also you do have that kind of experts positioning around that when they come to you they're like hey what do we need to do you tell them they go do it at that point there's there's an emotional beholdenness to you and to fe international it's not like oh man fe international just with their advice i 5x 10x my company i'm going to go over with schmo blow over here yeah like i imagine it does happen but i imagine you have much more of that connection to them and people tend to come back to you and say okay i'm ready now i would say so definitely on on average i mean there are obviously some examples where people people don't and ultimately you're, you're paying us a lot of money so i totally understand like you're well within your rights to shop around mm-hmm. um and people do um but yeah i definitely feel like it builds credibility if you give someone advice they go roll it out and it works but ultimately um we're not the ones doing the work so right, the founder exactly. or founders, they're still the one doing the work. They're the ones putting two two years of 60 hours a week in, not me. So I'm not in any way, kind of, they're not obligated to work with us at the end of it. So right. like I said, b- big picture, more people in the industry having exits, more people having bigger exits is good for me and good for every international, even if we're not necessarily on every ticket. Yeah, definitely. I do want to get into kind of some of those ideas and like some of those what what are those scale points? What do you look for? But actually, I, I'm, I thought of something I'm kind of curious about. Are there companies that come to you that you look at them as like, it, you're just not going to be able to scale? Like, what are some of kind of the warning signs of a company coming to you and saying, hey, we're at 500,000 or we're at a million, we want to get to 10 to 50 to 100. And you're just like, probably not. Like, is so there I, anything? So I would say, as a general point, all businesses are capable of scaling and emphasis on the word business. Cause I think usually what holds businesses back are the people behind it, the founders. So often the business is almost never the problem. Yes. It can be tweaked. The product might kind of suck and need some work. The pricing is probably wrong. They probably haven't set up any emails. They've got no funnels. That's common. Like almost all small businesses have that as a kind of issue. Generally the challenges with the founder and a lot of the work we do is kind of helping the founder understand what they actually want. So for a lot of people to scale your business, it's unavoidable that once you get to a certain stage, you have to start hiring people. And with hiring people comes managing people. A lot of clients we work with, particularly at the, the lower end. So for us, that's a business that might be worth say a million dollars. So still a lot of money. It's probably just a single founder doing it themselves, um, making a nice living for themselves, but they don't actually want to hire people. So usually scale is limited by the, I guess we could call it the aspirations or the goals of the, the entrepreneur or the founder them, themselves. Um, I'd say there's almost no business that I can think of that I've ever seen that is capped out growth-wise. And you're like, right. no, you absolutely have 100% monopoly of this industry. Um, right. Not the kind of size businesses we see anyway. Um, it's almost always limited based on the founder and what they're willing to do. So a lot of the time we might tell someone, hey, your business is worth $5 million. And actually what they need to do to get to 20 is not something they're willing to do. So they go, right. okay, let's sell for okay, five, let's sell for 5 million. Um, right. So we have like quite honest conversations with people because it's almost never the business. A lot, I think right. a lot of founders assume it's the business. I know I, I used to, I remember when we first got to 
my, if you were interviewing Ismail, my business partner now, he, he still likes to laugh at me because when he joined the company in 2012 and I'd set up in 2010, he was like, what's the biggest the business can possibly get to? And I was convinced we were just short of a million dollars revenue at the time. And I was convinced about a million dollars was the cap of the industry because there was no one really else. There was no one to compare to. And I was like, a million dollars. And now we're <laughs> way in excess of 10 times that now. But at the time, I didn't know. So a lot of times as well, you are somewhat limited by, particularly if you're building like a niche or a micro, whatever you want to call it, indie side project, all sorts of different words people describe it as now. You often don't know how big your market is because you might be one of the only ones, but often you're not actually limited by anything other than your own ability to, to scale. But then I started like doing podcasts, for example, going to events, and then you start speaking to people who didn't even know your industry existed. And then they're right. like, oh yeah, I should sell my business. And then that person goes and tells 10 other people. And then over time you scale. And this was something interesting when we started with Psychometrics. Um, I was looking at other analytics companies in the industry that were at our scale. So like Barometrics, um, ProfitWell wasn't a thing back then, but like um, just like those. And I was looking at their revenue versus some of the other industries like email marketing and stuff like that. I was like, okay, we're going to be limited by the size. We understand that. And we've just blown past all of the limitations we thought that we had because we saw these very mature companies and we we knew their, their monthly revenue because they were open about that. And we're, we've blown past all those. And now we're starting to look at, okay, we're looking at the visibles and the, the Marketos and like the, the high level ones. And it's like, oh, there really isn't a ceiling here at all. Uh, the ceiling is like you're saying, what the ceiling is what we're going to make and what we're going to force ourselves because either we don't want to grow beyond that, we're not comfortable with it or whatever. And so making that decision to like, okay, there is no business ceiling there. Uh, has been really just eye-opening for us I know exactly because like now I sit here and then we like well how big is Goldman Sachs how big is JP Morgan and right. effectively we are at the stage now where we compete with them particularly at their lower end for us our higher end like a hundred million dollar deal we want it for them we have our best people internally working on it they have their like worst most junior people right, working junior on people. deals so we, we won those deals and we'll work very hard to get them and we'll often win win them but years ago if you said oh you're going to compete with jp morgan i would have right, laughed you know, like, <laughs> in your face and be like no i'm competing against like the guy who's going to try sell the business himself which yeah. is not really included in like industry size but it is is a genuine other option yeah. for people yeah i mean our our competitors what i would consider our real competitors are owned by adobe and salesforce and stuff like that it's like okay uh going up in the world so <laughs> exactly yeah so talking about that scaling and that it's usually a founder uh, holdback or hurdle uh, mentally almost uh, rather than a business one, on the business side, what are some of the things that you start to look for that are things that you need to, I guess the, the trigger points that start saying, hey, you need to scale. This is where we start to look if you're not being able to scale. Like what are some of those pitfalls, I guess? So I think probably... The most common one I see, and I, I'm probably a, a culprit of this as well, and I think almost almost all founders are, particularly if you found like technical founders, like my marketing is kind of, sorry, my background is not like marketing. It's kind of, I did a business degree at college and then I kind of stumbled into the industry and I figured out how to build a business, which is 
I like to think somewhat unique, but basically every founder is the same. They're like, well, I didn't come for money. I kind of figured it out. Still don't know what I'm doing 10 years in, but I've grown. We're now doing okay. Um, I think far too many people focus on marketing. So like my business isn't growing because I don't have enough leads. But then we look at how they're like nurturing those leads to become customers and then how they're nurturing those customers to stay customers and spend more. And they don't put any focus on it. They spend the vast majority of technical founders, if you look at their day, they spend 90% of the time on product. So like mm-hmm. the product has to be better, 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 better. 9% of the time on marketing and then 1% of the time on admin. Yeah. Whereas in reality, as your business scales, it then you spend way more time on admin and HR because with 90 people, as you can imagine, I have there's always some sort of people issue going on somewhere internally. Um, you probably start spending way less time on product. I wouldn't necessarily say we're always trying to improve our service, but it's somewhat mature. We now spend a lot of time figuring out, well, if someone sells a business with us, what happens over the next five years? Most people don't retire. They go launch another business. So we're like, well, how do we make sure they come back and work with us in five years time? So we kind of focus on, even though we're not a SaaS business, we focus on LTV. I think way too many founders don't really think about they kind of, I don't know, let's say that they sell a product for $50 a month. Average person stays for 18 months. They're like, okay, well, our LTV is 900 bucks. Uh, that's forever our LTV. They don't work on optimizing that number it, at all. Yeah. They're like, well, if I find another 10 people to sign up and I've got another 10 people, 900, well, I've made $9,000 effectively. Um, so what I think people should spend more time on is how do you increase that LTV? And in any business, you can increase LTV. SaaS service, e-commerce, any kind of business, a customer has a lifetime value, how to increase that. So often, I think, particularly in the, in the software industry, so the number one thing, and this has probably been repeated thousands of times when I was always pricing, I'd say everyone gets pricing wrong, um, almost universally. Every business can improve its pricing all the time. You should try and improve it. That usually... Let's give very generic advice to any SaaS business at $10,000 MRR. You could almost blindly double prices of all yep. of their price points and it will, no almost definitely, yep. will almost definitely grow the business. And I could give that blind to anyone at 10,000. When you get to say 200,000 MRR, not quite that simple. You can probably optimize, but it's not probably not making very basic pricing errors. Yeah. Um, so that's a really common one. Again, any business, same in a service business, most people, particularly early on, they undercharge for what they offer. They're charging $50 an hour and there's someone offering exactly the same thing who's asking for 200 and people are happily paying them 200 for right. literally the same, exactly the same service, just packaged slightly differently. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the things that people don't realize is that you can really go as high as you want with pricing as long as you're updating the packaging around it. I think easily, if you're at that 10, 10K MRR, yeah, double it. Just don't even have to change anything, just double it. But as you get higher, you, you can change the wrapping around that pricing to definitely with the same service, increase the value proposition a lot. Um, it, 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 exactly. And sometimes, particularly at the lower end, you don't even really need to change that much. Right. At the, at the higher end, yes, but there are things you can do to add perceived value and like make it seem better without actually having to change a, a huge amount. But I think pricing is like extremely common that people get wrong or anything 
anything to do with optimizing LTV effectively. Right. And I think that people, when they're looking at LTV, they don't really realize that there's really two sides of the LTV. There's what are you giving on the back end? So how are you increasing that length during SaaS? What are your upsells? Do you do uh, consulting on top of the product? What are the subscription rates? Like that, that part of things in the retention side. But there's also the front end. It's like, where are you getting your leads? Are people from different channels and different uh, ways that they find you, different lead sources are going to be worth different amounts of money over the lifetime? Because some people, uh, we had a, uh, I won't name names, but we had uh, a discussion going on about one of the uh, lifetime deal companies that are that are so big. And they were asking, well, what's the value there? And it's like, well, they're all going to be cheapo customers because they're looking to pay $50 for lifetime value. And if that's valuable to you, then cool. But most of the time, your your lifetime value is going to be much higher than that if you get it from a better source. For, for sure. I think, yeah, that's where I guess the marketing part can be relevant because a lot mm-hmm. of people, it's like, well, the, like I said, LTV say 900 bucks, but maybe if you got the right kind of customers without changing anything, it might be five times higher. It might be four and a half thousand and you haven't had right. to do anything. Um, so that's definitely a, a, something that we spend a lot of time on as well. It's like, well, as you can imagine at this stage in the business, we get leads from everywhere, but all leads are not necessarily equal. So we spend a lot of time on not necessarily lead scoring, but just establishing like what's the average value of a lead that we get from their podcast. I'm like, okay, well, mm-hmm. this is worth a hundred bucks. So maybe I should do more podcasts. Maybe it's like an event. Maybe it's a thousand dollars. But an event obviously has significantly more outlay. Maybe it's right. SEO. It could be all sorts of different things. But we spend a lot of time working backwards with our conversion data, client data, being like, well, where do they come from? What's it worth? Why don't we do more of that, less of that? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is one of the things that we've always really pushed when we're doing with Segmetrics with the conversion optimization of your funnels and stuff, um, which is not just one point. So it's like, okay, the event or Facebook ads or whatever, but also a combination of that segmentation. So people in the event who came to the event who are copywriters, great. They're worth like 900 bucks LTV. People from the event who were uh, freelance writers, they're only worth a hundred bucks, right? And being able to make those combinations of people who did this and this, and then I are worth more and then identify where on that funnel the the most valuable leads go and where the least valuable leads go and then try to figure out why right why is it that freelance writers don't like our product and is it because our webinar keeps talking about designers and all of our marketing copy is around designers like just being able to figure out stuff like that for sure and like the older your business gets i guess the easier it is particularly if you're actually tracking everything from the start don't necessarily need to advance it straight away yeah exactly exactly so what are some of the things that you kind of look at as you're looking at sales? So we talked about like lifetime value, looking at how to increase that. Like what are some of the, the warning signs or what are some of like the low hanging fruit that you kind of look at when you are looking to scale a business like that? Yeah. So say once you fix pricing and say fixed, it should be an ongoing. Optimized. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You should always be testing. So I would say, average business SaaS business you should be running at least one price test a month mm. super simple double the price of a package add a new package remove a package add a free trial remove a free trial whatever it might be always be testing it's by far almost always the easiest way to increase 
revenue longer term. Um, a common one a lot of people kind of for like don't put too much effort into is much earlier in the funnel. So things like free trial to paid conversion rate. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people, and then even earlier than that, if you don't have a free trial, it might literally just be like website visitor to free trial or website visitor to paying user, or it might be somewhere different in the funnel, like to demo. Um, a lot of people then don't put enough thought into, they're like, oh, well, my SaaS is self-serve. Therefore, I'm not going to touch the client. Just because it's self-serve doesn't mean you shouldn't help them. Like one of the other best ways of increasing your LTV is improving onboarding. So you should constantly be figuring out ways to onboard clients better. And that should not necessarily mean ways that reduce your time and cost. It's things that get people actually, I mean, the main reason people churn ultimately in the majority of SaaS products is because they're not using it or not using it, usually not using it properly. Particularly once you get to enterprise level, enterprises, even at like FE International side, I don't want to churn off anything we use unless it literally stops working. Um, so we won't churn unless we're not using it properly. And companies will, will often have like 20 licenses to sign and I realize no one in the team is using it and we'll cancel. But that's usually because we've not been onboarded properly. So we've like signed up. Yeah, I have an account. But I have no idea what it is, what it does. So spending time, you can do this in a very automated way, like getting people onboarded in a better way. And like you say, like tracking what they've done, like has this person watched the onboarding video? Have they signed up for an onboarding call? Depending again, depending on your LTV, you can't do this for everyone. Have they read our ebook? Have they read our blog post? Did they subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel? Tons of different stuff like that. Um, track all those things. And like you mentioned, like figure out what are your best customers doing? What do they do they read documentation? Do they watch videos? Whatever it might be. Chances are your best customers are somewhat self-taught, but they'll do that by reading all your documentation, speaking to other users, that kind of stuff. Um, so anything early in the funnel, like that's where you have the most chance of leakage because it's like, well, you have a thousand people who are visiting your website, hundred people are then signing up for a free trial and then 10% of those, so 10 people are then becoming a paid Board, user. Yeah. You've lost 990 people between visiting your website and turning into a paid user. Right. So that's why you should be spending at least a reasonable amount of your time. And then obviously once they're a paid user as well, figure out how to keep them. Often it's just as simple as proving to them they are getting results with your product. Right. So usually just as simple as each month, send them an automated email which says, hey, Keith, congratulations. This month you made X many dollars with my product or you converted 100 more people or you designed 50 more pages or whatever it might be. Right remind them that you exist and remind them that they were successful with your product. Um, and most people won't churn. I think too many people are like, oh, well, actually it's really important that I'm really honest. So I'm going to email them and warn them they're going to be rebuilt. So it's like in three days, you're going to get billed. Mm-hmm. Yes, you should do that as well. But you should also email people explaining. You shouldn't feel guilty for charging them. Right. I think and- people are like, I have to warn the client many times that they're going to get billed again. Right. Yes, that's correct. But you should also make very clear to them how successful they've been with your product. And if they're right. not, how, how do we improve that? If they're right. not logging in, they're not, let's say they've set up, you have a product that helps them generate more leads and they've got zero leads, then eventually they're going to churn unless you help them find leads. So call them, reach out to them. If you're a small business, I mean, almost any business, you should better reach out to people manually. Just put the work in yourself early on. 
Um, yeah. There's so many different things, but I think a lot of people get very fixated. The vast majority of technical founders spend all of their time on product. They're like, oh, people are churning because we haven't got like, we haven't got a feature which like emails them, sends them a pen in right. the mail with our branding on because they haven't got a branded t-shirt. Like they're definitely going to churn. Is it- oh. Someone as, else. as I look at as I look at my box of branded T-shirts over there, <laughs> you're yeah, like shining a spotlight right on. Right I have a, a cupboard that I've not told my wife about, which is full of various merchandise. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think too many too many technical founders get obsessed with product. They always believe churn is because there's a problem with the product. In the vast majority of cases, it's almost no one in my experience churns because it's lacking a feature because they never would have signed up in the first place. I feel the same way. And it's something that I've had to overcome with my dream because I am a technical founder. Um, and for a long time, it was, oh, I, we just need this one more product that, or one more feature and everyone's going to come and be banging down the doors. And what I've really seen is it's the onboarding, it's the support. Uh, our customer success team is like five times the size of our dev team. Like it, it is important to have really good support. And so, you know, you had mentioned that you know, a lot of technical founders, they think it's just a turnkey thing or self-serve, right? So someone signs up, they start using the app, uh, and then the founder never has to touch them. And I think, I don't know of any successful businesses where that's actually true, like where... Exactly. So yes, it can be self-serve, but adding some people into that process can be hugely beneficial. But I guess the caveat there is, depending on your target audience, mm-hmm. 90% of customers, even your best customers will on a SaaS product will actually never talk to you and they'll never want to talk to you. But 10%, and the other thing about the 10% who do want to talk to you, if you're competing, like you say, all these other companies you're competing with, even the bigger ones, if you're the first one to pick up the phone or the first one to reach out to them proactively or send them some suggestions, which are truly personalized, they're going to stay with, stay with you. Right. Because most other companies haven't bothered to do it. And the self-serve ones are going to stay anyway. Yeah. Um, they've already figured it out. They're developers. They don't want to reach out to anyone. They'd rather figure it out themselves. But the ones you do make the effort to reach out to, they're the ones that will drive that value long-term. Yeah. So yeah, self-serve is fine, but self-serve with help if you need it. Similar, kind of, if you go to a supermarket, all supermarkets these days have self-checkout, or mm-hmm. most of them do. But that doesn't mean when you're going around getting your groceries, there's not, you go to the, the meat counter, there's still someone there to chop your chicken. It's, right. You're not it's, physically like cutting the chicken yourself. It just That would obviously not work. Yeah. And I think you hit on something really important there, which is that the people who don't want to talk to you are going to make that decision themselves. And there's nothing you can really do from a personal standpoint that really helps. I mean, you can make documentation better, blah, blah, blah. That's all product side, right? But the people who do want to talk to you, if you're not there, they're going to feel let down. So the, the people who don't want to talk to you, it doesn't really matter if you're there or not, not but the people who do want to talk to you. So going back to your supermarket um, example, if you only had the self-checkout and someone wanted to go through the regular checkout because they had a question and they're just standing at the checkout waiting for someone to show up, that's not a great... You, you've suddenly failed your customers, right? Yeah, hence why they have options because they figured out there are some customers who will just leave. And then for them, it's also like, I don't know a huge amount about supermarkets, but they have a calculation like self-serve means a higher rate of theft. But then you're kind of 
similar to like self-onboarding has probably a higher rate of churn right. because they're figuring out themselves and then leaving. So this is where the data comes into it. You need to be figuring out like what's the LTV of someone who's self-serve? What's the LTV of someone who's not self-serve? And then yeah. how do we find the ones with more of the people that look like the higher LTV and less of the people with the lower LTV? And that's what I found as well is that most of the higher LTV people do have more, they want to talk to someone or they at least maybe not constantly, but at least one call just to make sure or one discussion to make sure, yeah, there's real people here, right? Like looking at enterprise deals, I used to do uh, enterprise sales and I guess maybe I'm overly uh, um, pushed in that direction, but larger customers seem to want more handholding and they want to get on more calls and they want to have more of that support behind them because they want to know when something goes wrong that they can be helped. I'd say so. And it's probably also because at that level, they probably found you because they're trying to solve a specific problem. Whereas like the freelancers that you mentioned, or people like early on or like the lifetime deal crowd, they, they've heard it's a cool product, so they're going to buy it. And then they're like, oh, I've got this lead tool I bought for $50. How do I get more leads? Mm-hmm. Whereas big companies don't think like that. They're like, okay, we have a, a lead problem. What is a tool that will help us automate outreach or something like that? And then you go research tools that help you and maybe you'll find the $50 tool, but it's probably not what the enterprise is buying. They're probably willing to pay more for the company that will get on the call and explain how it's going to help solve their issue. Yeah. And the security of it as well. Like, and I, this took me a long time to realize, but when you are charging more and you have more support around it, there's a guarantee, there's almost like a guarantee that you're going to be around longer. So bigger companies, they don't care that they're saving $50 or $100 a month if they have, if there's a fear that you're going to go out of business and they're going to have to find a new solution in six months. And that's a, exactly you know, to change their entire tool. And I think that's what a lot of people, uh, founder, especially technical founders, look at is like, oh, I think that everyone, thinks like me and doesn't look at the the higher echelons of like enterprise or larger businesses that the they're trying to solve the same problems but the hurdles are not price and it's not a technical problem it's a support and a person problem yeah and also often like big companies they have many priorities if i look at my like list of things i should do on my to-do list this year it's probably literally a thousand things how many will I actually do? Like 10. But I'll pick on the ones that I think are most important. And the other ones who were like, well, can we just remove it? Can I delegate it? Can I outsource it? Is there a product we can sign up for that helps right. solve this problem? And if so, let's do it. Yes, technically, I could use one of our development team to build it out ourselves, customize it, do everything we need. But if it's not a one priority, then why would you do it? Whereas a lot of developers right. think like, well, I could build this tool myself in weeks so i'll save all the money like yes you could but big companies often their priorities are not the same as same as what they might be to you right exactly and that's i mean i don't know if you read hacker news i believe you do but like the um the famous dropbox quote which was like i can't believe this is a pro when dropbox came out someone famously said i can't believe there's a product you can just rsync to the server that you set yeah, up i could have made it's it like, in a weekend or whatever yeah right I, it's like the technical side is not the thing that they're solving. It's the it's the ease of use. It, 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 it exactly. I think Hacker News is a very good example of the demographic of people who are probably not going to buy your product because they do, <laughs> uh, they can make it. So to answer your question, 
I'm aware of hacking news, but for my own mental health, I try and avoid it at all costs. I, yeah, me too. I, I used to be much more uh, prolific on it than I am now. It's like, I, I still read it because it's uh, I'm addicted, but other than that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I think I do want to be conscious of your time. So as we're looking to scale or as people are looking to scale, what are some of the other like gotchas or the the like things that once you see, you should really latch on to? Like, is there anything else that comes to mind that's like, oh, we saw this weird thing definitely latch on that and ride that all the way to the moon kind of thing. Well, I think that actually is the exact point. Once you find something that works, keep doing it. You don't have to continuously. I think too many founders are like, oh yeah, I got this working. Now I'm going to go do something Next else. Thing, right. Yeah. But actually there's a lot of businesses, particularly if you look at a lot of like companies who have gone public and it's like, oh, how did you scale your marketing? It's like outbound. Like what else do you do? Oh no, we just sent, we hired a hundred SDRs, not one. And we send a million emails a month, not 10,000. So often you can literally scale. And I still have to tell myself this every day. You can actually just more do more of what's already working. You don't necessarily need a new bright idea. And as you get bigger and bigger, small changes can make drastic differences to your top line. So early on, say that $10,000 MRR level, you probably do need to be doing things at 50% 50% revenue to be worth your time spending three months in it. As you get bigger, let's say 10 million revenue, even tweaking something by like 1%, it's another 100,000 a year. That's like, well, I can hire another hire another full-time employee with this one tweak. And then it's like, oh, here's another one that's 2%. So these marginal gains add up yep. over time. Um, so I think it's something you realize as you get bigger, you don't necessarily need all these big wins. You can just do more of what's already working and improve what's, working necessarily have to be overly creative yeah and i think that's something that a lot of people i I think people get stuck in that first uh when you're still trying to figure out what's working right and you need those big changes and i think people get stuck in that mindset instead of like okay i found this works you can really scale something all the way up into the moon as far as like optimizing it and like you said when you're doing a million one percent is a great is a great growth uh, metric right like at the beginning when that's $100 $100 or $1,000, that doesn't feel as good. But once you're at a million, 10 million, 100 million, whatever, that's, it becomes a very, um, it becomes a very powerful multiplier. It, it, exactly. Like, I'm not a, a math expert or an engineer or anything like that. But just I think a lot of people don't realize that compound growth applies to incremental improvements as well. Lots of 1% improvements add up over the course of a year. You don't have to find you don't have to double your leads overnight. Right. In most businesses, it's not actually, first, it's not actually possible or easy. And too many people spend way too long trying to find like the magic. Like you say, like the, the lifetime deal crowd is like, oh, this magic tool, press a button, I get more leads. Mm-hmm. Not, not, at least in my experience, if it was that easy, then everyone would do it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that it's one reason I think why SaaS is so popular as well, especially for investment and for... Um, for businesses because it's recurring revenue and a 1% increase in the number is, is ongoing. Whereas e-com or kind of just regular sales that can stop at any point because you have no recurring stream. And that's why a lot of e-com now going towards those subscription boxes or the, pro- the products that are automatically sent or anything to get that recurring revenue because it increased that value, that valuation, that scale. 
now one customer is no longer worth a $50 one-time purchase. They're worth $50 times however long they're part of your ecosystem. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know that everyone listening to this uh, has gotten a ton of value out of this because I've gotten a ton of value out of this. Um, where can people find you? And uh, yeah, where can people find you on the web? Yeah, so I guess like to my point of what works, like started now more active on social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whichever one you like. Pretty active on those three. Same with company like the FE International, we have an account on each. If you're interested in more specific content about what we do, might be buying, might be selling. For most people, it's eventually selling, kind of fundamentals evaluation. Go to our website, have a blog. We have white papers on kind of industry trends, like what's happening with valuations. Oh, so, yeah, what's happening with valuations. Um, we have specific blog posts about valuations for specific business models. Or if you want to speak to us about valuation, we offer free valuations. If you want to buy a business or you're thinking about buying a business, you can reach out. And like I said, valuations are free. There's no harm in reaching out. Um, and the team are always publishing new content, which is, like I said, not for everyone. This is kind of the point. Like you have to go on there and find what's relevant to you, but there should be something for everyone. Awesome. And we'll put those links in the show notes and uh, link to all of that. Cool. Well, th thanks so much. Appreciate having me on. Yeah, definitely. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.